0: Good morning to each of you this morning. It's a privilege to be here in Gladys today. I uh, always enjoy getting back here. I've enjoyed the pulpit exchange for two reasons. One is that we get to listen to someone new up in Floyd, and I miss being there this morning because Sam is there, but also because we get to visit you on occasion, and so it's good to be here today. We just sang an interesting song. It said, Beyond the Sacred Page, I Seek Thee, Lord. Now, what does that mean to you? Uh, you think about that? So we have the word of God and scripture in front of us. We can read what it says. But our Christianity is not the worship of a book. We're looking for the author of the book. And what God says to us does not stop with just what the principles in scripture say, but then how those need to be applied to our life, personal ways. So beyond what we see in scripture as principle and foundations, We need God to reveal to us how these are supposed to work out practically in everyday life. And that's where uh, true Christianity is lived out. So I hope we can do that this morning. Back in Deuteronomy 1, Israel was gathered uh, just outside Canaan. And Moses begins a review of their time from uh, Jordan all the way up to the present. This was 40 years after their first or their Dead Sea crossing, Red Sea crossing, and he begins by reviewing their history. And he goes back and reminds them of all that God has done for them. And uh, then he reviews the Ten Commandments. You can find them twice. You find them back in Exodus 20 and again in, in Deuteronomy, I believe, 2 or 3, reminding them to keep all of God's laws. And then he comes to Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Now, there were many commands. Uh, Moses reviewed many of them in those chapters. Uh, Many directives, but none were so high, and probably none were so hard as this one. Love the Lord with all your heart. And it was easy to fear God. They just had to come up to Mount Sinai and be terrified. But it was easy to forget to love And to keep that devotion as number one in their life. That was the beginning, the first place we find this commandment. Now, a thousand years later, when Jesus was walking the streets, a lawyer came to Jesus, or a scribe came to Jesus, and asked him, which is the first commandment of all, tempting him? And uh, in his question, he recognized that some commands take priority over other commands. Some things are first place, and other things come afterwards, and uh, some supersede others. And Jesus quoted Moses back there in Deuteronomy 6 to confirm what is the number one thing. And Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and this is the first of the commandments. Then he quoted the second one, which is to love thy neighbor as thyself. But this command will never be demoted. I believe Jesus confirmed that. It will never be replaced. There's no substitute for the first commandment. It's the first one in priority. But another day, a lawyer stood up and tempted Jesus and said, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus returned the question, What does the law say? And the lawyer then quoted Deuteronomy 6. And Jesus said, Do this and thou shalt live. So it's not only the first commandment, but it's a commandment to life. This is the way that we come into life is by loving the Lord our God with all our heart. And uh, today the first commandment is still the first. This first commandment supersedes our doctrinal positions. It goes before our church discipline. It goes beyond our brotherhood agreements. It's the underlying foundational thing from which all other things begin. It gives life to all the other requirements. And I believe the obedience to all the rest is simply a consequence of obeying the first. And obedience to all the rest without the first is deadness and does not have life in itself that way. Now, love alone is hard to measure. Love exists in the heart. It exists in the mind. There's no window. There's no dipstick. There's no way to measure the love as a as an element we may sing about it but it doesn't guarantee that we have it we may talk about it but it doesn't prove that it exists there but love has many consequences and many expressions and as jesus talks about love and john writes about love there are many practical ways to live this out and the number one and all the rest is the is obedience Love and obedience are always connected, always related. It's the highest expression of love. And I believe John was probably there that day when Jesus said, uh, Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Do this and thou shalt live. He was probably there listening and observing. And John was one that wrote more about loving God than probably most of the rest of the apostles. In his book, uh, The Gospel of John, as well as the first and second and third books of John, and about loving God with all our heart and keeping his commandments. And those three booklets, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, if I'm not mistaken, were probably written from Ephesus, as John was an old man. And I don't know what John was thinking as he was sitting there writing 1st John. Um, he's an old man now. This is years after Christ ascended, years after those discussions on the streets. And he's writing to the church of Jesus Christ, the called out group of disciples and followers. And he wrote much about loving God with all our heart. But as he was looking out the window, I wonder what he saw as he thought about what to write to these people. Maybe he was looking down at the bustling seaport below, or maybe the, uh, the fair in the town square, or the young people in the streets calling to each other, or the sheep pens, or the businesses, and all these things. But he wanted to help people understand what it meant to love God with all their heart. And it comes down to 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16. i like to read this as the perfect pair, as the paired opposite of Jesus' words as he quoted Deuteronomy 6. In 1 John 2, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now you might look at these as unrelated, but I see them as very, very much tied together because this one is simply a logical consequence of the great commandment. Uh, It's a paired opposite. It's, It's a natural sequence because there's no way to love one thing with all your heart without leaving something else. And there's a love and there's a love not. There's a draw nigh to and draw away from. There's a, a uh, adhere to and a separate from. And I believe these are, are naturally paired together. And uh, love is a powerful thing. Love can set our course. Love can determine our decisions. Love can fix our destiny. And I believe John knew this as well as we, that what we love Uh, transforms our hearts and turns us into something else. And uh, John knew that loving the world and fixating on material things will simply make us a copy of our culture. But loving Christ and following him and uh, loving him with all our hearts will remake us into his image. And it leads us down a different path, a different destiny. So if I would give a subject this morning, I would say we're going to talk about the reverse of the great commandment. The love not the world side of loving the Lord with all our heart. I believe those things go hand in hand. What does it mean to do that? Why is it important? How should that affect us today? And I assume this was an issue in John's day. It certainly is in our day. If it was an issue with him, I'm sure it's an issue with us. Uh, you know, today we look around where we live. and We probably live in one of the wealthiest nations in the world a time when technology is exploding, a time when we have luxury that most people in all of history have only dreamed about and couldn't even imagine. We live in a time of blurring lines, a time of general apostasy, a time of when, when the noise of the world drums out the devotion to Christ to lip service and turns many people's expression of Christianity into simply something we talk about on Sundays while we pursue other things. But I believe in this environment that we live in today, uh, the the pure church of Jesus Christ can only shine brighter and brighter and uh, become more unique and more visible and more glorious as we adhere to loving the Lord with all our heart. And as sin progresses and darkness progresses, the light can shine brighter still. Scripture uses vivid pictures, and in Revelation, there's two of them. We don't have time to go and read them. But Revelation describes two women in, uh, I guess, an expression of other things. I think a lot of Revelation is symbolic of, of things. But the great war that's described in Revelation 17, I'm not here to describe what this might represent. But look at her briefly as in contrast. John saw her and described her and said, Here was a woman that all the world admired and looked after. Uh, Kings admired her. The citizens were drunk with what she had to offer. She was dressed in red and purple. She was gaudy, attention-grabbing. She was decorated with gold and silver and pearls. She was a picture of brazen attractiveness. On her forehead is written, Mother of Harlots. In her hand she had a golden cup full of abomination, and she was drunk with the blood of the saints. Can you picture that? Picture of, of, of twisted, fallen beauty, brazen, abominable attractiveness. And then it says in Revelation 21 about the bride adorned for her husband. And in Revelation 19, she said, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now here it's very clear. The bride pictured here is the collective body of the Lord Jesus Christ that as a group, as a church, were ready to meet him and, and live with him and be spend eternity with him. But can you imagine the whore beside the bride? The first picture beside the second one. What a grotesque contrast between the two. Uh, One is gaudy and flashy and brazen and pushy and the other is dressed in white and meek and prepared as a bride for her husband. She seeks to attract no one because she already belongs to someone. The whore is a shame and an embarrassment. The bride is dressed in white, pure, unashamed and ready. I believe the church of Jesus Christ is serious about keeping herself pure. And I believe the bride is a bride by definition because she has set limits for herself. And because she has said yes to one, she is saying no to everyone else. And uh, the harlot by definition is a harlot because she sets no limits. By saying yes to anyone, she has There's no exclusiveness. There's no faithfulness. There's no devotion to anyone. And let that jar us a little bit, thinking about what the church is supposed to be and how we prepare ourselves for the Lord Jesus Christ and his second return. I believe the church does well to set limits for itself in our seek to be a pure bride ready for Christ. And it's true we come out of different places the church here, the church next door, the church wherever may decide that we need to apply things a little different way, and I believe that's perfectly okay. Uh, We might look at each other a little strange sometimes, but that's perfectly okay. I got a phone call a little while ago from someone that wasn't very happy with his home congregation and was looking for some other options. And he told me some things he wasn't happy about, his own church chafing under some restrictions that were being handed out there. And and I told him that... uh, I didn't feel it was my place to criticize another congregation but that I would seek to respect any church group that tries to keep itself as a set apart people. And I believe we might not come out of the same place and perhaps I would not agree with where they would come out on some things but I respect their desire to be a church reserved unto Jesus Christ and separate from the world and uh, seeking to hold that Position. But even in our desire to set a, a tone for our congregation, it's impossible to set the parameters in all things right where they ought to be. Part of the reason is that the world changes so fast, it's difficult for us to keep up with it. It's simply impossible to do it. Uh, if you look at technology on a graph, we've expanded exponentially in the last, last century We went from horse and buggy to the moon in probably less than 70 years. A huge shift uh, from landlines to satellite and worldwide instant messaging in probably less than a generation. Um, From personal calculators that used to weigh a bunch and cost a ton, to little computers we carry around in our pockets and we don't even think about anymore in less than a generation. Things change so fast. The, uh, the things that we count as normal today, uh, we, we love them, but they're like fire in our pockets. Uh, you know, years ago, radio faced the church and many conservative groups said, no, we can't have that. Others said, yeah, we can have that. Later, television faced the church. A lot of groups decided, no, we shouldn't do this. Later, VCRs and then computers and then internet. And with the advent of internet, we have circumvented the need for any of the previous ones, and most of us have accepted that one. And it's everything. It can be our shopping mall, it can be our television screen, it can be our uh, parts store or encyclopedia, sometimes in the classroom, I'm not sure how to pronounce a word. I just ask Google and he tells me, and I can share with the class my newfound knowledge. And it can become a handy little tool, and we love these things because they're so helpful. But John wrote, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And how do we draw these lines, and how do we decide where we must be? Because the more we obtain, and the more we attain, and the more we gather, and the more we learn, it's just the more that we hold that we must not love, lest it bind us to an earth that is temporal and passing away. John said, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. I'd like to do a little word study this morning. Uh, briefly, because I know that sometimes Greek isn't that, uh, isn't my forte, especially. So I'm going to just step down here to the board, and you'll even forgive me for rearranging your furniture briefly because I'm you not hear me if I'm not close to the mic. Little uh, verse in John two fifteen. Um, the first word is love. Now, if you remember Scripture, there's a couple of words there that would be translated in our in our language. One is uh, the filial love, which is phileo, and uh, I guess that's a, the verb form of to love, and this would carry the context that to be a friend with, or to be fond of, or to have a special feeling for, or a sentiment towards something else, and uh, there's a wider use of a word, the agape, or in this case, agapeo, which is also, I believe, the verb form of to love something. And this one embraces something beyond feeling. It's a decision-making love. It's a love of choice. It's a deliberate assent of the will because of a principle we hold or something we're deciding about. Um, they're related. The filial love has more to do with the heart. This one has more to do with the head. In uh, the the filial use in Scripture, these would be some examples. The Pharisees loved to play pray in public places. Uh, he that loveth father and mother more than me. That's this one. This one is the, the heart, the feeling of, of love. Uh, when they said, Lord, he whom thou lovest is sick. Um, if you are in the world, the world would love its own. Is that use of it. This one is a little bit different. Um, when scripture says, love the Lord thy God. That's this use, the agape use. Love your enemies, the same one. It says, love thy neighbor as thyself. It's the agape use. Uh, If any man love me, he will keep my words. Husbands, love your wives. That's this one at the bottom. Now, these words are related, but they're not the same. It's a a love of feeling versus a love of commitment. It's what I feel versus what I decide and carry out, if I understand you right. When it says, love not the world, which one do you think it's talking about? It's the first one. Uh, Love not the world in the sense in don't choose it. Don't judge in its favor. Don't assent to it. Don't base your decisions on its principles. Um, That's that use. Now, the word world. So we have love, and then we have a word that means a staunch not and no. And then we have the world. Now, there's a couple uses for this one. Uh, One is this one. Simply a G-E, gay, or gay or something like that. Uh, that's the earth on which we walk. It's the ground out there, what it produces, maybe the inhabitants there. Uh, that's that one. Then you have the cosmos. And the cosmos is the orderliness, the systems of the world, the decoration of it, the world and its inhabitants. And there again, it might be a similar word. Now, when it says love not the world, it says this one, not. The cosmos. Uh, that's the use of this, of this world. Now, God put us in a beautiful world. A place we'll enjoy. I, I re- think about it every spring when, when the seasons change and we live in such a beautiful place. But the people are fallen. The world is fallen. The systems are broken. And things are not as they should be. And as believers you and I have a complicated relationship with the world in which we live. We're not given another option. This is where we're places where we live out our life and our time, but we're given some pretty careful descriptions of how we should and should not handle it. Um, God created the world and put Adam here, and Adam soon learned that good things come out of the soil. In fact, almost every good thing comes out of the soil, out of the world in which we live. Food grows there. Animals grow there. Uh, most of what we need comes from the earth. The raw material, the food, the pasture for the steaks, the, uh, well, the whole food chain starts there. The trees to make the lumber, the fuel comes from there. And, and if you think about it, even our economies today are based on the wealth that comes from the ground. There's a lot of what we call service-based economy where you know there's hair salons and beauty parlors and theaters and things like that. But if you really want to add wealth to an economy, you'll probably trace it back to the soil. That's where it comes from. Raw material, or else taking that raw material and making it something that's valuable to somebody. That's where it comes from. And there's no shame in wealth gotten honestly from God's good earth. But Paul gave a word to the wealthy. In 1 Timothy 6, 17, it says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. So first of all, stay humble. Wealth should not make you feel more um, exalted or superior. That's how the world thinks. Don't trust your wealth. That's not where our trust lies. One fairly wealthy older man told me one time, that, uh, you know, wealth is deceptive. He said one thing he struggles with is beginning to think that his money can solve all his problems. And that's a deceit that wealth brings with it. You need to be very careful about that. And uh, we need to understand that our problems are not solved with what's in our hip pocket. Wealth becomes wrong when it edges God out. But the premise of this verse is that God richly gives us all things to enjoy. And if you enjoy gardening and you can walk barefoot in the newly tilled soil and just enjoy the rich smell of earth, uh, it's yours to enjoy. God put it there for your use. Uh, if you enjoy a quiet morning in the spring woods listen to turkeys gobbling, uh, have fun with that because there it is for your use. Steady work. I came home from working at our house one day a couple of weeks ago and told my wife, I'm so glad we have plenty of things to do. Wouldn't life be boring if we weren't so busy? And we do enjoy all the, the uh, opportunities around us. We enjoy good food and hot coffee and cold apple cider and, and knockout roses and, and fresh vegetables and so many things that add spice to life. And so we delight in the earth God gave us, but we delight responsibly and in moderation because God's warnings balance God's richest blessings. You need to be aware of both. Somehow, we're allowed to enjoy it but not love it. Use it, but not cling to it. Use it as a tool, but not as a master. Now, it would be easy to think, since God said, love not the cosmos, let's not love the cosmos, but let's embrace the gift, Because that's the soil, that's the earth, that's where the blessings of life come from. But it's not quite that simple. Uh, John 1.10 says, He was in the cosmos... And the cosmos was made by him and the cosmos knew him not. So Jesus created the cosmos. And Colossians 3.2 says, set, not your, set your affections on things above, not on things on the game, on the earth, on the soil, the blessings that come out of the earth on which we live. So we can't simply separate those and say one we can, the other we can't. Not even the blessings of the earth in which we live, are worthy of our affection. So that's one principle. Now, love not the world, John wrote, but Jesus shows us one exception to that. And except for one difference, it would seem that John 3.16 would, would contradict 1 John 2.15. Because when it says, For God so loved the world, it used the very same phrase. Uh, Agape and cosmos. That's what it uses. Uh, But it doesn't say not. It says, in this way, God loved the world. Um, Think about how Jesus loved the world. In this way he did it, that he gave of himself for it. Unsanctified love looks at the world as something to borrow from and to make mine and to make a copy of and adopt it but Jesus' love is so much different Jesus would look at the world and think what can I give to it how can I take what is God's and make it theirs and we do not live in a world which we must embrace as our own but live in a world that we need to save for the Lord Jesus Christ that's how he came to love the world one takes theirs for our own the other takes of God's and offers it to them And he gave of himself for it. And that's the acceptable way to love the world. James describes our relationship to the world in very clear terms. In James 4, verse 4, it says, You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. There's only one way to have an adulterer. And that is take a person with a previous commitment and have him violate that commitment. When when James writes to adulterers, I believe he's speaking to those that have once made a commitment to the Lord Jesus but have now begun to vacillate and maybe change their allegiance and maybe let other loves come in. And spiritual whoredom is not necessarily the changing of religions. It's not that once I was a Christian and now I'm a Muslim. It's not that once I was a Mennonite and now I'm a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, spiritual whoredom is when a person begins to abandon single-mindedness and adopt <clears throat> other things you see our God is the one of a few that requires monotheism he does not accept that we worship him and worship a host of others many other religions would not be, have a problem with that um, but spiritual whoredom could be a number of things One of which is when a person or when a church, perhaps through some uh, insecurity, but begins to compete for society's approval and their ratings and their respect and their regard, that opens a person to a host of compromises. That's one place they can begin. But James said, be a friend of the world, you'll be an enemy with God. You seek their approval, you're compromising something else. Now, this principle of separation unto God and this friendship with God and the love not the world, I believe, is rooted in several other principles I'd like to point out briefly, one of which is the principle of idolatry. Um, There's an interesting succession of thought here. We had a communion service not long ago, and Michael preached the message. And in that message, he pointed out this, this verse, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians 10 where it says that when the Gentiles sacrifice to the idols, they're not sacrificing to the idols, they're sacrificing to demons. Uh, you cannot worship an idol without involving yourself in something truly anti-God and truly on the other side. Um, but then there's a second verse in Colossians 3.5 where it says that covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is is idolatry. It puts covetousness in the same category. Now this is where you and I will struggle with the world around us. How can I live in this world and use this world and enjoy it without making an idol out of it, without letting it get in a wrongful place? On one of my travels recently, I met, with a, met a young man who was really excited. He had just bought for himself a brand new four-by-four, four, or side-by-side side four-wheeler. I don't know even what brand it was or what. but. And he told me all about it. He was really excited. He said he'd gone to the dealer with something lesser in mind. He had his eyes on his new machine. And because of the low interest rate, he wanted to buy this machine and pay it all over the next years. But when he got there and had it loaded up, he realized the dealer told him, I'm sorry, you misunderstood. That's not the interest rate I can give you. And, ah, he didn't want to get it done. So he said, he's going to spend $5,000 extra and get the next model up. Save some money on interest, you know. And so he did. And uh, he told me all about its suspension and about the four-inch cleats on the wheels and its ability to churn through muck and through snow and through uh, anything. And, and he gave me a ride in it. And uh, it was a fun little ride. We went up some banks and through some ditches and... Uh, you know, mud on the windshield, and it was an interesting machine. And he had justified his purchase. Said this thing is going to keep its value. I can sell this thing down the road and make almost as much on it. I can use it for work, and I can take, use it as a tax write-off. And I didn't tell him that all three of my old vehicles put together probably wouldn't be worth half of what this side by side is worth. Um, now, I suppose it's possible to own a new side by side and not love it. But it's very difficult. Now I suppose it'd be possible to own a million dollar home with a personal golf course and a swimming pool and not love it. It'd be very difficult. It's possible to own a bass boat or a fast computer or whatever else it might be and not love it. And I guess it'd be possible to buy an old farmhouse on seven and a half acres and spend a year dreaming about it and fixing it up and working on it and not love it. But it's very difficult. And that's where I'm at and that's why I need this message and I invite you to pray for me in that because even the legitimate things in life can be a snare because so that's one principle, the principle of idolatry then there's the principle of one master not two Jesus said no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one and despise the other You cannot serve God and mammon So tucked in this passage on faith is this little verse about who we're serving and who we're aligned with. And I believe, and I find, and you might too, that materialism is probably one of the most subtle masters out there because it comes so close to the things we really need to get along day by day. And yet, without some care, and without some faith, and without some trust, we can fall in this trap. So now we have to have hands in the work but our heart above it. So now we have to use material things but serve the Lord with all our heart. Another principle that this whole concept is based on is the principle that Jesus said, for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. I would simply put it this way, that God abhors what fallen man esteems for this reason, Because whatever replaces devotion and love to him in the hearts of people is a direct challenge to his exclusiveness in our life. It would be sort of like how a husband would feel to a suitor that's after his wife, would you think? That's sort of what we're facing here. Whatever man's idolatry is, God hates it. Whatever excites and motivates the masses should at least be suspect to the child of God for this very reason. If it's so captivated in the hearts and minds of the world, we as God's children need to really be cautious and wary of these things. You know, the Patriots won the Super Bowl last year, but I don't think God really cared about that. I don't know if you cared or not, but I don't think God did uh, you know, a few weeks ago, VW's stock was surging back because VW was beginning to buy back about 500,000 diesel vehicles that had failed this emissions test. I don't think God really cared about that either. Now, if you owned VW's stock, you probably would. I probably would, too. But anything that diverts man's attention and holds his affection and is idolized, God hates it. And with reason, we can be friends with one and not the other. Now, Jesus was called the friend of sinners. And with good reason, he would eat with them. He spent time with them. He didn't mind them coming close. He walked with lepers, and I believe it's the same today. I believe I can safely say that Jesus today would be no friend of American Idol. But he would love every person. He'd be no friend of the NFL, but he would love every sinner on the team. Isn't that how Jesus would look at it? Now we can go on to this and look at what worldliness looks like. I believe we can understand enough. The next verse says that the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And we could talk about that. But when we look at these things, can we understand ourselves? Can we see in ourselves when we are in danger or not? And here's just a little way, I believe, that we can use to keep ourselves from danger. When we can put this, this concept in all that we do, if we can do all to the glory of God, that's, what, that's one way to distinguish between uh, enjoying the world that God gave us Without loving the cosmos that God commands us not to love. Do all to the glory of God. Um, Worldliness is a pressure and a menace to every age. It's a menace to the young. It's a menace to the old. There's an interesting paradox. There are people out there that have experienced what it means to live in the world. And have seen beyond the slickness and the glamour of the, the presentation of the world. And they're sick of it. There's a lady in our church who's been visiting there. And she met with my wife and I and told us something about her past. And the ruin and the neglect and the sadness that came from living a life of flesh and living in sin. And a lot of the regrets that she's had. So we have people like that. Then we have people inside that are looking out there and saying, I wonder what it's like. And I wonder if I would like it. And so we have this passing of people, some that have experienced it and are sick of it and seeking to find rest among the people of God and some that have, are curious enough to be heading the other direction. And this lady told us, I wish I could meet with these people, every young person that is tempted to go out there and live like that, to let them know what it's really like. And I would like to just invite you young, there's a few of you here this morning, the young among us. You you, you need to realize you can't just pick and choose among what's out there. Um, it's, It's like a package deal. You can't embrace the music and reject the rebellion and the immorality that comes along with it. You can't embrace the pop culture and yet stand against the direction it's headed. You can't have the movies yet reject the message and the immorality that's embedded in things like that. We need to be wise. And this is one way to help us understand. If we can come away from what we enjoy doing, thanking and blessing God for it, uh, that's a green light. That's an uh, a open door for the blessings that God has given. And if you have a successful turkey hunt, can you come away thanking the Lord for that? I believe you can. I was fishing with a brother up there, and we, we caught a walleye. And uh, he got the thing in the boat and says, thank you, Jesus. He had this walleye. And I believe we can do that. Now, can you say thank you, Jesus, for an $18,000 side-by-side? Well, maybe you can. For a, you, you put in the words. I don't have to do it. You can understand where we're headed. But if you can't thank God of the good conscience, you are allowed to ask yourself, is this violating that principle on the board? Now, there's weaknesses in middle age. Some of us may struggle with the same things, but maybe move on to others. Sometimes for us, a little beyond youth, we tend to struggle with things like materialism, things like status, things like image, maybe a, a slackened zeal, and maybe a passiveness. Maybe it's politics and worldview. Maybe it's things like that that we have subtle um, weakening because we're not careful in these areas. And I'll just share this briefly. I have begun to realize that even news consumption, if we're not careful, and be if we, whenever sin is conveyed as normal, and we consume that viewpoint, it can begin to affect our worldview and how we look at things like that. So as we listen to NPR and as we listen to talk radio, or if we don't, bless you for that. But those things need to be done with much care because it can have a subtle effect on the way we view the world. And Jesus said, love not the world. In Titus 2, we're going to close. In Titus 2, verses 11 through 13. Grace has come grace brings salvation, but it brings more. it says, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of that great of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, Grace from God not only saves us, but it sets us on a new path, a path that denies ungodliness and denies worldliness and fleshliness and operates under the Spirit of Christ and leads us in a new direction. Now, we don't get to choose the age in which we live, but we get to choose how we will live in it and what decisions we will make for it. And then it says, looking for the glorious coming of Christ. If that is our daily life, springboard and foundation and thought. What a difference that would make in the way we live our life. Now, if Jesus would come today, what would that mean? Jesus told a story, and whether it's a parable or not, some would debate um, whether it's a true story or not, but the rich man and Lazarus. Now, I don't want to read into this more than is there, but I believe it's safe to say the rich man lived like an emperor Enjoying all the things that life could offer. The poor man lived on the other side of the economy. On the other side of the tracks, as it were. He was impoverished, barely surviving. And he was cut out of this world good, world's good almost completely. Lived a very different life. Now obviously this does not tell the whole story. Because I, we, we would not agree that poverty in itself is enough to give a person entrance in his eternal life. But after death, something was revealed about these two. Uh, what happened to a friend of the world system and what happened to one that was not? I think that much we can read into it. One was in paradise and one was, in, was not. Now, Abraham's words are very telling. Luke 16, 26. Beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. I'd like to suggest this morning, this great gulf that was fixed in death was only a cementing of the realities that were lived out in life. And the decisions and the lifestyle and the direction that were maybe somewhat apparent before were cemented and obvious afterwards. And uh, that great gulf was simply a result of choices in life. If we would love the Lord with all our heart, it means adhering to one at the expense of the other. And may that gulf be obvious as we live our lives, that people could look at us and say, you're so different, not just the way you dress, but the way you think, and the way you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and the way you handle life. Our calling today is to let this first command be lived out in practical ways. And I would pray that these blessings of life that God has so richly given us could serve as a springboard toward heaven and not a snare of hell around our feet. God bless us.